Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity. In addition, I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Clinic here in Stratford-upon-Avon. So today I have back with me Dr. Zoe Hodson, who has been before, and I don't think this will be your last time, Zoe, you don't get away that lightly. So <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me today. Zoe is one of our, if I say senior clinician, that sounds like she's very old and she's not she's younger <laughs> than me. So she's one of our very experienced clinicians that work with us in the clinic, but she does more than just work in the clinic. She's constantly trying to help reach women, reach men, reach anyone that will listen to try and improve menopause care and also try and look at the disparity of care actually and trying to reach women that we can't reach through our clinic or even the app or some other of our resources. So she's worked incredibly hard behind the scenes. But today we wanted to just really talk a little bit about HRT but but really focus more on testosterone because this comes up a lot and we just thought it would be really useful to have a bit of a discussion about it so I hope that's what you realise you're here for today. I know I have brought bigger soap boxes for both of us we need the massive ones today I think. (laughs) So let's just take it really far back so if I had met you 10 years ago Mm -hmm. And I had said to you, so how much testosterone do you prescribe for women? What would you have said? Well, this is really where it all started. I actually had this case and a lovely lady came in to see me. She's up and running on HRT, taking a bit of navigating. And she said, I've been reading around testosterone and I think it would really benefit me. And I had never really, I'd heard of intrinsic patches occasionally, but it took ages to get a referral to get them. So it wasn't... And then again, we didn't prescribe them. They're all done from secondary care. And I actually, looking back, felt really cross with her Mm. because I thought, why are you asking me to prescribe something that should be done in really specialist clinics? What do you mean you are asking me about it? This is clearly something that is only done in hospital and under really specialist tight guidance and must therefore be incredibly dangerous and complex. Mm. And that was the only time that it really crossed my radar. Had you had any training about testosterone or read anything about testosterone at that time? No, so we always sort of say, I mean, I think both of us, I had two hours training in menopause during 10 years, and that was basically to tell me never to prescribe HRT. Mm. And then every message she got from the snippets, from journals from then were constantly do not prescribe do not prescribe and I think it only really changed five years ago yeah absolutely so I mean I know 10 years ago I was not my radar no I feel really embarrassed to say this but I will I didn't even know that women produced testosterone no it was never mentioned at medical school no and so I know that men produce some estrogen I've known Mm. that for a long time but I didn't know that we did and actually it was when I was at um, a clinical update with lots of different topics and one of them was about menopause and I started to get more interested this time and I I went and heard Nick Panay who's the king of menopause he's been on the podcast series before and he spoke about testosterone and I thought what what's he talking about have I come to the wrong lecture and then I didn't think any really thing more of it. And then the NICE guidance came out and they mentioned testosterone, mm. don't they? They say women can be considered for testosterone if they have reduced sexual desire despite taking HRT. I thought, all right, I better know a bit more about this then. 
But it was quite hard actually to mm. find much about, wasn't it? It still is in some ways, but it's a bit better. But like you, no one prescribed it. So I thought it was something that was quite hard and quite difficult to prescribe. And the other thing, when I started to ask people about it, the women that had been on it all said they felt amazing. And some of the doctors who were sort of my era said, oh, yeah, when I was younger and did obs and gynae jobs, we used to give implants to people after their hysterectomy and they would love it. Mm. They'd feel amazing and they'd come back for more and we said, no, we'd just give you one to get you through your recovery or something. But it didn't matter because women just went back to feeling okay. And that was it. That was all the conversation. And it was almost like what, what struck me then was I was thinking, why are women not allowed to feel really good then? They're not allowed to. And then I just have this whole thing, like you do, I know, about what if it is our own hormone? Why, firstly, are we denied it? And why, secondly, is it so hard to prescribe? Because it's not difficult to prescribe, is it? not at all. And I think that's the other thing as well, is as you start prescribing it, it frustrates me beyond belief that the guidelines just mention libido. Mm. That in itself is an issue. Yes, where there should be much more openness about libido. And yes, women, why aren't we permitted? Is that shame about wanting a sex drive? But we know from seeing so many women, the thing that fascinates me and why I'm so interested in this is the recovery of cognition, of energy, of strength, of motivation, the mood. And this is why I always say it's my favourite hormone because when women come back and their levels are sort of adequate if they're running well the commonest phrase that they will say is I can see myself again mm-hmm. and all of these symptoms that they just put down to well this happens when you get older and it's just cobblers yes because let's just take it back so what does testosterone do then it doesn't just work in our brains does it we've got cells clearly that respond to testosterone but where are these cells well you've got them everywhere haven't you it's sort of similar to estrogen yeah. and yeah. Again, we know that premenopausally, the ovaries produce three to four times more testosterone. And that, when I saw that... So say that once more, three to four times, times more testosterone than estrogen from the ovaries. So we should be thinking about it as, as important, if not more important than estrogen, shouldn't we? Yes. So for me, it's the HRT is the three hormones, isn't it? Mm. And we've just lost it. And it's yes. really, really sad. Because, again, you just see these generations of women that get forgotten, discarded, accept this. Mm. Menopause and perimenopause are a really vulnerable time anyway. Mm. And the effort to try and get hold of this particular, I mean, it's bad enough with your other own hormones, but this is one step beyond. At a time when you're on the floor, I mean, the descriptions you get with low test, I've had some beautiful descriptions of it's like psychologically and physically wading through porridge. Mm. And another lady said, it's like fatigue of the soul. And it's, yes. that is, it just says it so beautifully. It's just everything is hard. Thinking is hard. Moving is hard. It just is an effort. It is very difficult, isn't it? And I, I mean, I, people know that I use testosterone and I didn't know I was deficient because I thought I was just struggling because of everything else. But it's like you have a lead weight attached to your brain and your body and you sort of just, you know you can function. So you're not so bad, or some women are, but a lot of women aren't so bad that they need sort of medical help. They think that's just their lot. Mm. So they're not going to go for a promotion. They're not going to 
bother taking the kids to the park. They might as well sit down and watch telly because it's just easier. I mean, I found even little things like unloading the dishwasher, which takes two minutes. I just looked at it and thought, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's too much effort. But it's it's also really frightening, isn't it? Because, I mean, I had time off work. And looking back, I think I'd never had time off work in 20 years. And suddenly I was sitting in consultations and I couldn't remember the name of medications. And it was taking me... I'd sit with bloods in the evening and normally you'd go through them quite quickly and just leave the ones that need. And it was taking me ages because it just felt like someone had watched a big lump of cotton wool in my brain and the effort of processing. Yeah, it's very hard. I I mean, I was trying to write my website. How funny is that about the menopause? (laughs) And And I kept saying to my husband, do you know what? I just can't think. I feel like I've been drugged. It was just the weirdest thing. And he's like, but you're always telling me you're tired. Why are you so suddenly it's tired? It's a different it's feeling, isn't nine it? Nine o'clock. I said, but I'll go to bed and I won't sleep. It's a really weird feeling. And and there is some research, isn't there, to show how important testosterone is on our brain and our muscles and our bones and our hearts as well, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think there has been a bit of discussion. I go to every lecture I can at every conference about testosterone to try and find out more. But like you said there's a lot about libido there is a discussion is whether it's an age-related decline or whether it's a pure menopause perimenopause decline but my sort of question is does it really matter but actually I also think there's probably more younger women with low testosterone than we realize because we never think about it we never test it we know that some things do lower testosterone don't they things like oral estrogen Mm -hmm. can actually reduce the availability of testosterone so that means actually some women and girls and teenagers who take an oral contraceptive pill their testosterone might lower and actually that might be a problem because if they're having difficulty concentrating at school or if their libido is low or if they um just their motivation's low no one's going to think about testosterone are they and knowing what the reference ranges are as well as a GP, isn't it? Because the only time I had experienced testosterone bloods was looking at polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. And so the range can look quite large. So I've spoken to women who've been really upset, terrified that they've got dementia. They've had some testosterone bloods done that have been reported as normal, but they're normal because they're not in the range of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And those women have higher levels, don't yes. they? So I saw a woman the other day and she'd had her bloods done with her endocrinologist, actually. And she said, oh, no, the results are all normal. And I said, just read them out to me. And the testosterone was down as 0.1, <laughs> which is very low. Yes. But the result just said normal. Yes, because it's in the range, isn't it? Yeah. So we have to be... And actually, blood tests, you don't always need a blood test, do you, before you start testosterone? Because if a woman has very classical symptoms, especially if she's perimenopausal or menopausal, then often it's it's a bit like starting HRT, isn't it? Yeah. You don't have to have a blood test. But I think this all comes back, isn't it? It's to this, the fear of the unknown. So we mm. really have to go, like many other things, we have to go right back to the beginning again, that it's taught and it's taught repeatedly and it's normalised mm. because it shouldn't. we shouldn't be doing this in our clinic. Absolutely, I totally agree. But I do know, actually, when I first started prescribing testosterone as a GP with the nice guidance had come out I had 
finally managed to get HRT from a specialist. And then I started HRT with testosterone. My brain was coming back and I thought, right, I'm going to start giving it to some of my patients. Mm. I realised it's safe and easy. And I did more monitoring then because I wanted to make sure what I was doing was right. And I'd quickly see the results of these women and think, actually, this is one of the easiest Mm. things I've prescribed because some of you, I'm sure, know that when women take HRT with estrogen and progesterone, quite often people get symptoms such as bloating or breast tenderness or bleeding is a really common symptom, isn't it? A side effect for the first three to six months. But actually testosterone doesn't, it can cause occasional bit of bleeding sometimes, doesn't usually cause significant side effects, does it? No, and I think this is, again, because we're getting it into normal female range. Yes. Just going back quickly, because what I meant by saying we shouldn't be doing it in our clinic, we should be doing it in our clinic. But I firmly believe that this should be in the realm of general practice. Absolutely. We shouldn't, shouldn't, people shouldn't come to a specialist clinic, is what you're saying, because it's so easy to prescribe. And actually, I don't know about you, but when I started general practice, I was a bit nervous prescribing thyroxine because I was worried about getting the dose right Mm -hmm. and how would I know? And then actually I thought, well, you just try it and see. And then you can monitor their blood test, see what their symptoms are like. And some women, as you know, need very high doses of thyroxine and others need a low dose and they're fine. And then when I've had people with type 1 diabetes, starting insulin in general practice can be quite difficult, Mm. depending on the patient. But that's a lot more specialist and it's a lot more risky because you have to get it right. Because if you have too much insulin, obviously your sugar level will be very, very low. But these hormones are so much safer, aren't they? Yes, and they're so much easier as a Mm. GP to... Again, I started prescribing it in general practice as well. And it was just wonderful. There's so many women that had been misdiagnosed with things like chronic fatigue, with fibromyalgia. We had women that had been referred to the dementia clinic. And it was just, thankfully, unthankfully, the waiting list for that was incredibly long. So it just, I just said, well, can we just try this whilst we're waiting? And then, of course, they didn't need to go. Yes. And the relief mm. at having your cognitive function back again. Again, we see so many women, don't we, through the clinic that have been under chronic fatigue clinics for years and nobody, nobody has looked at the woman and said, right, what were you doing five years ago? You were running marathons. Mm. What has happened? What stage of life are you in? Yeah. And this is what's really important, you know, and we should be picking it up, not just on ourselves, but on our friends or, you know, anyone should be thinking and actually women can help themselves a bit if they know more. And I saw a lady Yesterday, actually, in my clinic, who'd had chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, she had an autoimmune condition, and she used to be a yoga teacher, really fit and well, and she said she had a hysterectomy in 2015, and I said, when was your autoimmune condition diagnosed 2015? When did you have to stop exercise, and when did you really struggle? She said, well, 2016, but I was given high-dose steroids. I was given some really toxic drugs for this autoimmune condition. And I said, well, at the time, did anyone ask you about, you know, whether any of it could be related to your periods you were, or to your hormones? You were 47 when you had your hysterectomy. And so it's likely that your ovaries, although they were left behind, probably weren't producing much. And certainly now, it's six years later, they won't be producing any hormones. And she said, well, I've tried one pump of estrogen and felt a bit better. But she said, I used to exercise very easily. Mm. I used to be able to build muscle very easily. And now I am so tired. But when I do exercise, I just can't get any muscle tone at all. 
And I'm sure a lot of it is related to low testosterone. And this is, we, we hear this as well, because we ask women who are sort of seeing personal trainers or going to the gym. And it's one of the questions I ask is for the work that you're putting in, are you getting stronger? Because often there'll be very sort of puzzled personal trainers out there saying, but mm. you're working so, so hard and yet you're not getting stronger. And then when they're on the testosterone, their levels are back in the normal female range, yes. which I will say again. Because, again, look at Newson Health, look at all of us. Many of us are on testosterone. We are not bearded. Normal female range. So, again, it's, this is where it comes down to this sort of crowd effect that if we all start talking about it, we know there's a long, long way to go. We're both really hopeful that this, at some point, this will be in the realm of general practice. Mm. But we've still got an awful lot of work to do with this and I know that you're working hard with NHS England at the moment yeah absolutely this is with their national menopause program to try and help not just with testosterone but HRT in general but let me just summarize then before we go further Zoe we're talking about a natural hormone that women produce we all produce and it declines maybe with age but maybe with menopause as we get older essentially it declines but it's not licensed But it is licensed for men, isn't it? Yes. So men are allowed their own testosterone back. Women that produce testosterone, we all produce testosterone, we all have it in lower doses, are not allowed it back because it's not a licensed product. That's right, isn't it? It sounds crazy when you spell it out. It is. How dare you request your own hormone in 2021? It's quite shocking, isn't it? And we've all, when you look at the evidence, like you say, or the guidelines, most of it talks about libido. And we both agree that libido is very important in women as well as for men. But we also know that it helps with all this other mood, energy, concentration, stamina and so forth. But even if we just look at libido, okay, so the guidelines are saying women can take it to improve their libido, but we haven't got a licensed product If we think about men, there's lots of reasons why they might have reduced libido or even erectile problems. One of the ways that they might choose to improve their erectile dysfunction is by taking Viagra, which not everyone can take because there are some contraindications. But when they realised how good Viagra was, they managed to get it available over the counter very quickly, didn't they? They did. And that's not that won't that won't reduce the that won't reduce the risk of osteoporosis. Might help actually with heart disease, but it won't necessarily reduce the risk of dementia and obesity and diabetes. And it's fairly expensive, but men can buy it over the counter, can't they? They can freely available and it is now actually freely available on the nhs as well it used to have to be a private prescription only but they changed that very quickly yes when they realized how effective it was for men and i'm not a man hater at all but i am a feminist i suppose i i believe in gender equality so what we're talking about here is very unequal isn't it yes just to put it out there really so testosterone is safer than viagra really i think you could argue for a lot of women but we can't even get it prescribed as a licensed product. Even that in itself, at this stage of life, if you have a male partner, they are allowed to continue enjoying a healthy sex drive. You are not. Mm. It just doesn't make sense, does it? So anyway, we're not here to moan, we're here to try and improve. So how do we get around this? There are a couple of ways, aren't there? So firstly, in the NHS, 
we are allowed to prescribe drugs that are off license. When we say license, it means that when a drug has a license, it's for a certain condition and a certain dose, isn't it? Yes. So, for example, there's a drug called amitriptyline, which is licensed as an antidepressant at a certain dose. But we also know that it helps reduce pain in the nerves. So if I had a trapped nerve in my neck, pain down my shoulder, you as a GP might choose to give me amitriptyline, mightn't you, for my nerve pain. It's not licensed in that way, but it's a regulated product and you're just prescribing it. We call it off license. But that's still very safe because studies have shown that it helps with nerve pain. And that's 15% of GP prescribing, isn't 15%. It? So yes. That's a loss, isn't it? It's about one in seven, one in eight of prescriptions are off licence. So especially a lot of children, pregnant women, all sorts of things, because we know they're safe and um, we've got some evidence. So that's fine. We're allowed to do that. We're not going to get stuck off from prescribing off licence. So with testosterone, we are allowed to prescribe the male testosterone off licence. So because it's exactly the same testosterone, isn't it? There are further caveats, aren't there? (laughs) Yes, we'll talk about that in a minute. But so it's the same testosterone. Some people think it's a female testosterone and a male testosterone. It's not. It's just the same hormone, but lower doses. So there is a a gel. And I think it's important to say for those people listening in the UK, there's two really that we would recommend. There's called Testim, which comes as a little tube, or Testo gel, the one that comes in the sachet. The ones that come in a pump for men It's often very hard to titrate the dose. So I would really be very clear about steering clear of those and just using the sachet or the tube, but making each one last seven to 10 days. So that is available, you would hope, through general practice. First caveat is that the doctor has, or clinician, it doesn't have to be a doctor, a nurse prescriber or a pharmacist who prescribes, has to have some training. We know that's difficult in itself. But it also, each area, there's a CCG, isn't there? And there's a prescribing guidance. So can you just explain a bit about that? Yeah, so each area, I mean, in some areas of Wales, it's health boards, but basically each area of the UK has a designated sort of catchment area, if you'd like. And there are pharmacists, clinicians, there's a panel that decides what is available to prescribe and advises, and there will be a formulary, and the GPs are strongly advised to stick to that prescribing formulary. So if there are queries about medications, the GP will go to their local formulary guidance, they'll look it up and they'll say, and very often it's something called a traffic light system. So it will be divided into red, amber, green, green, fine, go and prescribe, red, don't go anywhere near, it has to be in a specialist setting. And amber is where if it's started in a specialist clinic, it can then be continued by the GP if they feel comfortable to do so. Mm. So when I started looking at this, I thought, well, surely the majority of the UK must be amber because surely lots of menopause clinics are doing this. And so there should be guidelines in place for this to happen because we don't want to clog up scarce appointments with women having to go back for monitoring and back for prescriptions. And that's when the eye opener started. It's very, very difficult to do this as a one-stop policy. It's incredibly difficult. So I am at the moment with a bit of, I don't know if you can call it a labour of love, a labour of frustration, ploughing through, I think at the last count there are 144 CCGs. So I am approaching them individually, trying to have a look on the formulary, which is often really tricky to navigate, to see what their stance is on 
women having their own hormone in 2021. It's very variable, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, we've both been GPs and there were lots of things that were blacklisted. So in where I work, I wasn't supposedly allowed to prescribe each adjestan, which is the natural body identical progesterone. But I did it because there's more evidence to support it and no one told me off. But actually, sometimes with testosterone, you're really forbidden, aren't you, as yes. a GP? You're absolutely not allowed to. So with the Utrogestan, I just said, well, I'm doing it anyway because it's better for my patients, and I got away with it. And I did the same with testosterone, actually, and I got away with it. But actually, some we've even got some doctors who work with us in specialist clinics, menopause specialist clinics through the NHS, but they're not allowed to prescribe testosterone. Yes, and again, I think if you're as a GP... So eutrogestin, as a GP, you're still familiar with progestogens. You've, yes. you've handled them with the pill. There's this familiarity. So it doesn't feel as much of a leap to follow evidence base. If you're the only GP or nurse prescriber or pharmacist in a practice, then it feels very uncomfortable to be the only one doing this if you don't have the support of your peers. It's very, very hard. And I've done it for a while, just done my own thing because I've done what's right but I've also had the luxury when I was a GP I worked part-time and it meant the other days that I wasn't working I could plow myself through reading articles and journals and papers and guidelines and I could absorb all this knowledge and work it out for myself because I've done a lot of medical writing over the years and I'm quite good at reading some of the stats and everything else but I had time to do it. If I was working as a full-time GP, it's exhausting to be a full-time GP. You can't do it. And you have to, often when you're busy, you go to your peers or your network, or you'll go to a journal for a summary. And if all these people are saying testosterone is dangerous, too difficult, don't do it. Why would you do it? You wouldn't do it. And you don't actually, it sounds really awful, but you're a bit like a hamster wheel sometimes. You don't have time to reflect. You're just so busy with your job. And this is what's, you know, not just in general practice, lots of physicians, lots of nurses, lots of healthcare professionals. Everyone is very busy. And if you haven't got an engaging team, and I think what we've found working together is that we give each other more confidence. And, but it's really hard because women are caught in the middle of this, aren't they? And that's what's really tragic about all of this and this is what I've heard a lot is again that they'll find a GP who will sort of really listen to them be interested in it and then say well I'll have to take it back to my practice team and then it's a well I'm really sorry I can't yeah and that's again it's lack of knowledge isn't it yes absolutely so we've got the nice guidance that many of you listening have heard about the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence guidance which was produced in 2015 for management of the menopause, and it does mention testosterone. On the Menopause Doctor website, if you put in easy to the search function, there's an easy HRT prescribing guide for healthcare professionals, which is written in an evidence-based way. And women can actually download and print that off, and it's very clear it talks about which testosterone. And privately, women can get this testosterone androfem, which is a female testosterone cream, which is now licensed in Australia. And at the moment, we're only allowed to prescribe it privately. It works out about 80p a day. But we're really hoping with some of the work I'm doing with NHS England that it will be licensed as a product for females. I'm very excited, actually, aren't you, for that day, Zoe, when it happens. Oh, we'll because... be out with the foghorns. Yeah, absolutely. So, But I think there is a move. And I think what we're trying to really say in this brief sort of conversation about testosterone is 
it is a hormone. We should be allowed to have it. We have to stay really strong. And for some women, they're going to have to just stay a bit patient. But I really want to try and let people know that we are working behind the scenes. We are really trying to show there's a massive inequality. There's a big postcode lottery of prescribing of testosterone. But also we're trying on this podcast to support our colleagues out there in primary care and secondary care because we do understand that it's not their fault if they can't prescribe it. No, it's so many factors, isn't it? It's lack of training, it's lack of support from your formulary, it's lack of adequate Mm. preparations. And again, because it's been interesting approaching the different formularies to hear the reasoning behind this and they are wide and varied and some of them absolutely nonsensical. So it is things from it's off-licence. Well, that one is relatively easy to challenge. Mm. There are other ones with the tester gel sachets saying, well, we can't advocate for something where you have to leave half a sachet lying around. And again, if you're really being sort of pedantic, it's difficult to argue that one. So, I mean, I think even the fact with the huge, huge uptake with the confidence in menopause course, there is a real interest in this. But it totally is. Yeah. We're at a really sort of tight point in the NHS, aren't we, with the COVID and coming out of that. And I think... Ideally, this needs to be at junior training. You know, when, you, when you're talking about diabetes, you're trained on that three times mm. a year. And it just becomes, you just know about it. So you know how to it? navigate and everybody knows about it. Yeah. My other huge frustration that seems to be happening at the moment is one clinician in a practice will be earmarked to do menopause care. It's wrong. Absolutely. It should be every single doctor, nurse, pharmacist, clinician who sees an adult woman not just in primary care, but secondary care as well. So it's normalised. The same way that when we manage high blood pressure, you don't go and see a specialist, everyone should do it. If someone's got a headache, you don't go and see a headache specialist. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I said, if as a GP, if a male had come into me with, for example, erectile dysfunction, and I'd said, oh, no, no, I don't do willies, you'll have to go and see a male GP. But I would have been called up in front of the, and what are you doing? Quite rightly so, really. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So, no, it's exactly the same. So we've got a lot we need to do, but I hope this has given people just some food for thought and something to think about, really. So just before we finish, you know I'm going to ask you <laughs> three tips, really, to help women, because I, I feel uncomfortable talking about testosterone because I know so many women can't get it. So three tips that women could maybe take away to try and help them either receive testosterone now or when it's licensed in their hopeful not too distant future? I think the first one is we've got so much work to do to normalise this. So it's the whole thing of just keep reading, keep listening, keep talking to people. Again, with the women that are on testosterone, if you speak to your GP or another healthcare professional and you're feeling better on it, tell them that. So it's that just keep talking about it, keep normalising it, it's our hormone. The second one, I would say, please, please, please keep, I know you've all done a sterling job, but please keep alerting your practice to the confidence in menopause course. It's making a huge difference. I heard a wonderful story the other day about an area in Scotland that somebody had noticed that the email consult template had changed and it now included all the menopause symptoms and asked about function at work, home life, So it is, it's starting to change. We are changing this. And I think the other thing is, again, if you are going through a menopause clinic and they haven't mentioned testosterone, ask why. 
And then I'll have number four, which is to say a massive thank you to everyone out there. I think this is one of the things that social media has been brilliant at. The support that people give each other is incredible. And we see it all the time. And just to say we cannot thank you enough because there are very few of us. We are working incredibly hard to change this because it's wrong. But we do recognise it. We do see it. And just a big, big thank you. Well, you're the first person that's pushed the boundaries there, Zoe, and had number four, but I'll let you have I'm that. sorry. Because <laughs> it's very good. And I think, you know, lots of powerful things happen when women help women and we're seeing that and we can just keep working together, actually, because, you know, none of us are doing this in isolation. We're all working together and we're loving seeing how much we're making a difference, but we've got a long way to go and we're not going to stop, are we? So we're not. Thank you very much. And I'm sure you'll be back in the hot seat having another podcast soon. So thanks, Zoe, for tonight. Take care. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, you can go to my website, menopausedoctor.co.uk, or you can download our free app called Balance, available through the App Store and Google Play.